At Eastern Bank, we believe that growing business should also grow the community. That's why we work to give all business owners what they need to take their dreams to the next level. Our dedication to small businesses and communities has inspired us to create the Equity Alliance for Business program and become the number one SBA lender in Massachusetts for 15 years running. We're proud to be here for all businesses, big and small. See the good we can do for you by visiting easternbank.com slash business. Member FDIC. Welcome to Say More from Boston Globe Opinion. I'm Shirley Leung. It's launch day. I'm thrilled to bring you this new show. I've been a reporter, editor, and columnist at The Globe for more than two decades. And now I get to bring you inside my conversations about the big ideas and debates of our time. And to get us started, today we're going to talk about the internet and some of its darker sides. The internet has brought us a lot of good things. It's made commerce more efficient, knowledge more accessible, people more connected. But online social media is also a breeding ground for disinformation and extremism. When I think about the major challenges we face as a society, the manipulation of information online is right up there near the top. It's contributed to our hyperpolarized politics and even to political violence, as we saw when thousands of pro-Trump rioters stormed the Capitol on January 6th. To prevent more of this kind of real-world violence, we need to understand how disinformation operates online, how it's used to manipulate people's thoughts and behaviors and to recruit people to extremist beliefs. My guest today plums the murkiest depths of the Internet to understand all of this. Joan Donovan is research director at Harvard University's Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Much of my conversation with Joan was, frankly, scary. She explained how easy it is to slip down an extremist rabbit hole online, thanks to the design of social media algorithms. But she also offered some hope, some ideas for how to solve or at least mitigate the problem of online disinformation. Here's my conversation with Joan Donovan. Joan, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with something a bit different today. I want to play you some music. Okay. <laughs> I'm dancing here, <laughs> nodding oh, my head. It's <laughs> Do loud. you recognize this? Yeah, that's a band I used to play in uh, many, many moons ago. And I believe that's you on vocals, right? Yeah, I used to sing in a band with a bunch of friends up on the North Shore. I mean, you've been part of the rock scene in Massachusetts, punk rock scene in Massachusetts since the 90s, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's sort of where I cut my teeth and, and learned a lot about how the world works. Let's go into that a little bit more. I mean, I think that scene actually is what got you interested in studying extremist groups and how they communicate. And so connect those dots for me between the punk scene in the 90s and extremism. Yeah, I mean, when I was a teenager, just like everybody else, we're searching for a place to be, stuff to do. And I had started going to a place called The Rat in Boston to see bands and had my little fake ID so I could sneak into the Paradise Rock Club and the Avalon and things. And 
I just really loved music. But in the underground scene, there was a big trend towards violence. And one of the ways that you could understand who might be violent was by looking at them and what they were wearing, if they had shaved heads. So I'm thinking here very much about the skinhead side of the punk and hardcore uh, and even ska music scenes in Boston. And you had to really quickly adapt to this and understand that these people are not your friends. These people sometimes are looking to beat up your friends. Uh, homophobic people, vicious racists. So punk rock wasn't just a community of folks that were all like-minded. It was actually a very diverse crew of people that liked music and so the subcultures really had to mark out their territories. Was there a particular incident during your punk rock years that really crystallized the relationship between extremism and punk rock? Yeah, I mean, we were playing this show. It was a crazy night. It was down in Jamaica Plain. It was at this house that was being evicted. And my band was playing. And I actually got punched in the face by a well-known neo-Nazi and he had been throughout the night hitting women and pushing them down in the pit and I broke my tooth in half in that moment and I realized that it wasn't going to be just one individual that could take on such violence that you had to organize for counter violence and you had to organize to keep your community safe and that was a lot of what I did in my time in the Boston punk years was booking shows and being the person at the front door that lets people in. And if I didn't think someone was going to, you know, keep each other safe, I wouldn't let them in the room. Mm-hmm. And can you talk about some of the symbols or, or what were signs that, you know, these were extremists or skinheads that you shouldn't let into the house party that night? Yeah. And so... Uh, it's interesting because you learn these things through whispers and, and rumors. And so you might hear that someone's in a certain band that has lyrics that are anti-Semitic or misogynistic or homophobic. You might also get tipped off just by the T-shirts that they're wearing of bands that are also anti-Semitic, particularly T-shirts of a band called Screwdriver were ones that these skinheads would wear as a way to mark themselves as being inside this group rather than just an average skinhead. Some skinheads would, of course, lace up their Doc Martens with red laces. This could mean that they had actually committed a murder. Uh, it could also mean that they were anti-Black or anti-Semitic or anti-gay. So a lot of it had to do with the signals between different parts of the scene that allowed you to understand and, and push back on people that were coming for different reasons. Okay, let's fast forward to your role as a researcher on extremism and media manipulation at Harvard. You know, as part of this research, you have an unusual nightly ritual of watching YouTube videos that you conduct in a place called the dungeon. I, I, th I think you still do that, but, uh, but tell me about that and why it's so important to your research. Yeah, well, I mean, I've, I, I refer to my office as a dungeon because it's just, it's a place I go where I fairly well closed off from the rest of my house. And 
what I do in there is I basically just catch up on the day's YouTube videos. And I'm not looking particularly at YouTube videos of, you know, fun stuff like cats eating pizza or people playing video games. I'm mostly letting the algorithms do the work. And I'm looking at videos sometimes of white supremacist podcasts where they're talking about the need for white enclaves and for white people to stand up against the government. Then sometimes the algorithm will recommend to me anti-trans content. That's been the bulk of the content that I've been seeing lately through recommendation algorithms is this idea that trans people are trying to indoctrinate children. It's all very horrific. But I think the main point is that it isn't on the dark web. This isn't in inaccessible places. It's not in places where you have to know what you're looking for to get it. It's in places that are in full view of everyday folks. And it's unfortunate that the way in which people might get brought into these kinds of conspiracist or extremist content is because they might hear a, a show like this one and say, well, what is she talking about, Screwdriver? I thought Screwdriver was, you know, a tool. And they might go looking for that content, which I don't recommend that people do. But ultimately, what you learn is that people are most susceptible to misinformation and this kind of content when they know what they don't know. That is, they start searching for things. And over the course of my research, moments where QAnon, for instance, poked through national conversation and you heard, you know, President Trump say it, for instance, that's the moment where people then go search for that content, not because they're interested in it, but because they're curious enough to look. How big of an audience for extremist content or how big of an audience are we talking about? It's a good question because one of the big battles that we've been having as researchers is getting those answers from the tech companies themselves, because it's really hard to gain that kind of data. We know on certain videos, we have a view count. We also have, sometimes there'll be likes or shares, but it's really hard to know when things are being shared in what we call hidden virality, that is on private pages or private message boards. So it's really hard to figure out. But as a sociologist, what I try to look at is the outcomes and the impact. That is to say, a piece of content that's been viewed very few times might become influential because of who interacts with it. That is to say, if someone who is newsworthy, like a celebrity or a politician or even a journalist were to circulate that content, that's the moment where we tend to see it explode in popularity and go viral. So when you go into your dungeon, what does it feel like to be exposed to that kind of material every night? I mean, how do you deal with watching the stuff that you're watching? Yeah, I mean, you know, to go back to where we started, my background really helps in the sense that I know what I believe in. I know where I stand. I know what I'm doing is a public service in the sense that if researchers don't pay attention to the depth and the details and the everydayness of 
hate, harassment, and incitement, then we're only going to confront it when something like January 6th happens or something like the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, where we see these very punctuated moments of violence. And my work is to show how small the problem really is, is that it's not that YouTube and Twitter and these platforms are infested with neo-Nazis and bots and foreign influence. It's rather the opposite. So let's stay on the topic of January 6th and and stop the steal. I mean, that was, it seems like a turning point for a lot of people where the public saw the real harm that online disinformation can spew into the real world. How did that happen? I think you knew this was coming, right? Not just me, but people on my team, other reporters that we've been engaging with for years that pay attention to mobilization of social movements. January 6th and the call out of Stop the Steal had hauled the hallmarks of building a social movement that had felt that their grievances were not being heard in any manner that was lawful. Trump understood what very few other politicians of the time understood, which is that the internet, especially because Trump was now aligned with Bannon, But the internet was a place to mobilize. It was a place to get people convinced and ready to go. And what Bannon did when he was head of Breitbart is he helped foment and bring into existence the alt-right, which is a group of people that were essentially rebranded version, a much younger version of white supremacist groups. And the alt-right styled itself as being very handsome and and cleaned up and talking policy, not just hateful rhetoric. And they weren't like the skinheads of old that I was used to seeing. This was button-up white supremacy. These were nice suits. These were tailored clothing. And so when you see something like the Unite the Right rally happen, where most of the footage you've probably seen comes from the Saturday absolute chaos where hundreds of people were injured and Heather Hare was murdered. In Virginia, right? In Virginia. But the night before was really the event they had organized, which was a rally where thousands of young white men wore white button-up shirts, khaki pants, and were carrying torches. And they marched all around Charlottesville, Virginia, until they got to the center of UVA campus and had an extremely violent confrontation with several students and community organizers that wanted to stand up to white supremacy in their town. And if you watch the footage from the Friday night, you can see that this group is very animated and is very indoctrinated by the language of memes online. And they're chanting things like blood and soil and Jews will not replace us. And it's this group then that carries forward many of the atrocious activities that we see before January 6th that are running street battles between the Proud Boys and other community organizers. And so that by the time you get to the end of Beam Wars in the book, you understand who is standing there at the steps of the Capitol ready to break in and why they're there is because they believe in Trump's message They believe the government is corrupt. They believe every legal avenue has been exhausted. 
and only them alone can turn the tide of history. Do you think we as a society have learned anything from these events, from Unite the Right to January 6th? I mean, we haven't really processed it. Yeah, I mean, you're going to have to talk to my therapist about that. (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, in some ways, I think that the processing is still happening. The systems that we have didn't exactly anticipate what it would be if Americans decided to turn against their own government and what that might look like. I often think that these kind of violent events are precipitated by what you might call practice runs, or you get these previews of these events. And so for January 6th, if you had watched in November and December, what kind of things were happening at other state capitals, you would have known that they were going to break into the Capitol because there had been other instances where Alex Jones and this young man named Nick Fuentes that leads this group called America First, which are anti-Semitic white nationalists, they were doing this kind of organizing in different states like Michigan and, and Georgia prior to what happened in D.C. on the 6th. And so that's what I'm talking about when I talk about the need to look at this stuff every day. It's because if you don't stay on the pulse and you don't understand the momentum and how the momentum is built, you won't be equipped or ready for those punctuated moments when things get really out of control. And a lot of this has to do with just basic understanding of how social movements work online, which is that if people don't think a lot of other people are going to go, they won't go. They'll think it's, you know, cringe or that it's for losers. And so social media plays such an important role, not just in telling people where to go, but also getting them revved up and excited and feeling like they're participating in something bigger than themselves. More of my conversation with Joan Donovan after this short break. Across New England, commercial businesses of all sizes rely on Eastern Bank. We help clients grow by being able to answer their larger loan needs and by offering innovative solutions, smart decision-making, and one-on-one relationships. From franchise financing to community development and asset-based lending, our knowledgeable and experienced commercial team deeply understands your business and the communities you serve. See how we can help you meet your business goals at easternbank.com commercial. And this is what it sounds like. Member FDIC. In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlick Case. Available now. So, Joan, let's go back to Meme Wars, this book that you wrote. And I want to specifically talk a little bit more about memes. You know, I think of memes as funny pictures or video clips, you know, overlaid with a a zinger, right? But you argue they're much more than that, you know, at times subversive and weaponized by the far right. So explain that a little bit more. Yeah. When you start to look at meme theory and you understand, it's a way of understanding language and cliche and marketing and sloganing 
flags, for instance, or memes. There's something that we are imbued with much more than the colors and the symbols on a flag. They have deep meanings, they have deeper resonances, they have deeper histories. If you take an American flag in the contemporary context, you have right-wing people who will use the American flag, you know, put it out in front of their house all year long. You'll have some center center left people that might put the American flag out during Memorial Day or July 4th. And then you have some progressives and leftists that see the American flag as the mark of colonization and imperialism. And what that means is that for some groups, the flag is a welcoming embrace. And for others, the flag is trauma and war and conquering of a land or of a people. And so just in a flag, you have all of these mixed meanings. And memes operate a lot in the same way. And online, they're just this very potent way of signaling to others whether you're in something or not. And great memes tend to be anonymous. And like good advertising, they tend to be sticky. And so the political adoption of memes by the right in particular has been something that I've been fascinated with over the years because Trump really incorporated memes into his everyday speak so that people had a way to to mark things and show that they were part of his his group. So not just stop the steal or lock her up, but crooked Hillary. And there were so many different ways in which he was activating memes. And it was very successful at bringing people together. Now, you've talked a lot about how the alt-right engages in disinformation campaigns. Do you see disinformation coming from the left, too? It's a different kind of disinformation. So on the right, what you'll see are things that are manufactured out of whole cloth. And I'm thinking about the way in which Alex Jones was calling people in Sandy Hook crisis actors, for instance. And so there's that kind of strategic disinformation. And then on the left, what you'll generally see is omission. So there will be a news story that you'd think people are should be covering, and the left might not cover it. And I'll give you an example here of the trial of Jesse Smollett. He was an actor. He had come out saying that someone had committed this horrible hate crime against him. A lot of leftist Democrat party members came out and said, this is terrible. How could this have happened? You dig deeper into his story and it starts to become confusing. They yell at him, this is MAGA country. And then they put a noose around his neck. The noose ends up looking like a shoelace maybe. But it kind of winnows away on the left and you don't hear about what the trial looked like and you don't hear about what the punishment was. But he was found guilty of faking a hate crime. And so that non-coverage is also a kind of media manipulation tactic that I often see on the left in a way that I don't see it necessarily happening in other spaces. And I'm talking about journalism particularly. What advice would you have for media outlets to not inadvertently manipulate the news by not covering something? I mean, what advice do you give to us? 
It's a tough question, but I do think that if something is newsworthy, you need to cover it. But it doesn't mean that you have to cover people's lies. It doesn't mean that you have to cover things early. But if a story seems too good to be true and you're getting fed a scoop on it, it's probably too good to be true. And so media has to be very much more aware of how the internet tries to drive stories to what media manipulators call trade up the chain. That is the planting of stories on social media, the riling up of people to get attention, or the planting of a story on a low-level blog that then gets circulated by somebody newsworthy. Media has to be much more credulous about what stories they pick and how they pick them and then how they frame them and who they interview. When I was doing research a couple of years ago about this concept of strategic silence that came out of newsrooms in the 1960s and 70s, the idea was that the KKK was seeking certain kinds of preferential coverage from journalists. And if they didn't get that kind of coverage, they would no longer engage with that news outlet. And so journalists had to understand that they were being constantly manipulated and also that their sourcing was a problem. And so what they realized is that the KKK was using them as a tool essentially to terrorize the rest of the town, especially if they were taking pictures of cross burnings or lynchings and publishing them in their papers. And so that idea of strategic silence is to say that you cover things when it benefits your audiences and you give them the audiences, the context they need to understand what is happening or you don't cover it at all. Because unfortunately, just going and handing the microphone over to uh, white nationalists, they're going to use that to their advantage. The Internet is vast. It's hard to police. I mean, can we even contain disinformation at this point? I mean, or is the cat too far out of the bag? <laughs> well, the cat had kittens. <laughs> and there's, yeah, now they're everywhere, right? But I think, no, I will never give up that we're too far gone. I do worry about new technologies that are these large language models that power things like ChatGPT or BARD. Um, because these kinds of technologies do not know what is true or false, and they just spit out what read like answers, but they're not calibrated on anything related to truth or fact-checking. A lot of this comes back to a time when social media companies saw an opportunity to monetize information. And now there are incentives for pushing out novel and outrageous content because that's what does well online. But the truth is always very boring. Unfortunately, it's the truth usually is pretty mediocre. It's, oh, okay. You know, I, I kind of thought it worked that way. And I'll give you an example here of where we need truth online. If you were to search for on different platforms, did the Holocaust happen? If you searched for it five years ago, you would get put right into anti-Semitic web pages and message boards. You'd become very close contact with people who are 
anti-Jew. And this is a huge problem. Over the years, search engines have tried to improve by stabilizing search and giving you access to the Holocaust Memorial Museum, giving you access to the ADL right up front. But unfortunately, none of our algorithms would naturally do this without human intervention because what the algorithms do is they comb the information environment for anything that's new, and then they rank it if it's being engaged with. And unfortunately, you do have people waking up every day saying, well, I'm going to go online and write a bunch of Holocaust denial. And there's nobody waking up every day saying, okay, I'm going to go online and do my civic duty of saying the Holocaust happened. So what needs to change? Yeah, there's a lot that needs to change. A few initial things that need to change is we do need to get serious about our privacy and protection laws online. We do need to treat these companies as if they make products. That is, social media is a product. It's a product similar to other advertising products. If we look at how social media companies make money, they make money on advertising. Mm-hmm. And so they need to be held accountable. And what's hard about my field is that you have these companies that also will offer up preferential access to data as well as funding to researchers might take a more soft view of social media as being good for everyone under every circumstance. And so like the tobacco companies of old that used to favor certain researchers to get away from Surgeon General's warnings, we're back in a very similar moment in history where we need much more independent research that is about auditing the performance of these platforms. I think most of our interventions up until now have been very punitive and they've focused on getting rid of content. I also think there's another way forward by pushing talk into people's timelines and news feeds, talk being timely, accurate local knowledge. And why I think that people's news feeds should be given per order of your zip code local knowledge or local news is because of the way in which we come into contact with misinformation through search, through wanting to understand more about the world, through these algorithms that once you express an interest in something like QAnon, the algorithms that are called reinforcement algorithms will every couple of links try to bring you back into that rabbit hole. Because ultimately, one of the hardest parts of this field is is seeing what we can't see. And a lot of times, because of the personalization of these platforms, it becomes harder and harder to get at those vulnerable groups who are being shown things that only they see. And, And that's a problem. So speaking of protecting customers or consumers, my kids are 10 and 12. They've grown up on the internet. They're attached to some form of electronic device, right? And I'm terrified of them going down the wrong rabbit hole. So what can I do as a parent to protect them from disinformation? It's a good question. And I think a couple of things about our young ones right now is that they are very suspicious of things that they see online. 
they're not keying into Facebook in the way that older generations are. They're not keying into Twitter in the same way, but they are seeking out news and information in places like YouTube, places like TikTok. <laughs> TikTok, yes. <laughs> which is, it, it's interesting because I am an avid TikTok user. And because news organizations haven't fully moved into TikTok, there's not a great strain of misinformation that flows through TikTok because news consumers aren't going there. And I think one of the key features of disinformation and politics in general online that I've learned is that it attaches itself to news because people generally want to see the news every day, but they don't necessarily want politics every day. And so politics becomes part of our news because it's a way to indoctrinate and lead people to ideological conclusions about stuff that they want to know about, like a gas leak in Texas, for instance, you know? And so news becomes an incredibly powerful host organism to the parasite of disinformation. And I do know that kids are learning in high school now more about media and net literacy, as well as learning about things like imposters and catfishing and, and you know, how to do a lot of Techniques that my generation never learned, like reverse image search and looking up people's profiles and making sure they are who they say they are. And so some of these techniques that we use as researchers are part and parcel of what it means to be a teen online today. So, Joan, you, you said something very striking about how misinformation and disinformation needs a host organism, and it's often the news. One of the biggest news stories on the horizon is the 2024 presidential election. So what will you be watching for? I'm keying in to look at the meme wars and the ways in which everyday words and understandings are going to be manipulated and how that's going to play out. Obviously, we've got someone like DeSantis who's obsessed with the word woke. That word comes from Black and LGBTQ subcultures that became popularized during the uprisings in Ferguson after the murder of Mike Brown. So woke for DeSantis is a way of saying the racist dog whistle without having to say it out loud. These are the kinds of things that I think are going to be important for us to look at to understand who these candidates are mobilizing online. My hope is that where we did have in 2020 a very robust attempt by platform companies to quarantine misinformation, all bets are off now. Google's laid off a bunch of people, as have Facebook, Twitter has imploded. And so it's really going to be up to journalists to keep people informed about what's happening and to keep one eye on the campaign and and one eye on the internet and know what the difference is between the two. I'll leave you with this parting thought, which is that on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. This is an old New Yorker cartoon where two dogs are looking <laughs> at a computer. Yeah. Be suspicious. Be suspicious of everything you see. You know, blue check marks don't mean what they used to mean. So don't just rely on this idea that, well, if they say they're Ron DeSantis, they must be Ron DeSantis, you know really start to dig in and, and make sure that before you share, you're confident that this event or this 
moment took place. Well, Joan, thank you for this thought-provoking conversation. And thank you for combing the underbelly of the Internet so the rest of us don't have to. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Today's episode was produced by Daniel Ackerman and Alexis Sargent with help from Scott Hellman and Abby Kanina. Our engineer is Ariana Martinez. Our editor is Jim Dow. Our music is from APM Music. If you like the show, please leave a review and follow us on Apple Podcasts. Find us online at globe.com slash opinion. I'm Shirley Leung. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.